Hey. Praveet, hello. Happy to hear you um, and happy for us to keep going with the second season of Ukrainian Spaces. And thank you, everyone, guys, for joining you. Uh, but a special, uh, a special thank you to all our sponsors, who are also I'm seeing here as well. Uh, thank you for keep us going and for your growing support. That means a lot that we are able to continue with Ukrainian Spaces. Absolutely. But I, I think, uh, Maxim, we just spoke earlier and I think you jinxed my sound uh, situation because I have really loud construction in the background. So I apologize for that in advance. Um, but I think without spending um, more time right now on other things, we can jump right in to introducing Ukrainian spaces for everyone who's joining us for the first time and for those who are joining us again and then going straight into our conversation with Sivgil, who is joining us today. Um, but yeah, as Maxim said, welcome to season two of Ukrainian Spaces, which is our podcast and live Twitter space that elevates Ukrainian voices and decolonizes conversations about Ukraine. Um, why we're here, it's easy. We keep seeing millions of Ukrainians with perfect English, sharing their stories across different social media platforms. Yet even six months into Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, many conversations about Ukraine still seem to be dominated by Western pundits. What many of them seem to miss is the necessity to look at what's going on in Ukraine through the lens of Russian colonialism that has ravaged the lands of Eastern Europe and Central Asia for centuries. So we want to be able to give the floor to Ukrainians from different backgrounds, different specialisms, and, re and really foster a relaxed, safe, and chill space for us Ukrainians to express themselves um, without the need of fitting Western boxes. And the rest who are joining us can use the space to educate themselves and decolonize their views of Ukrainians and Ukraine. Um, and once again, thank you everyone for joining. I'll pass back to Maxim, who can introduce our first, our, our one and only guest. Uh, yeah, uh, actually, I'm also uh, extra excited and a, a bit nervous as well, because uh, Sevgil is uh, such a uh, important voice, especially for as a fellow journalist and for journalists like myself. Uh, um, so we've been wanting to feature her and her work for a long time. And finally, it's it's uh, it's possible to do, but also it's a great timing because the word Crimea is so much used these days for many various reasons. And as, for example, President Zelensky mentioned uh, some time ago, that it's important to keep Crimea in our focus because Ukrainian uh, anti-colonial struggle started with Crimea in 2014 and it will end there as well. So um wanted to invite Sivgil. Uh, Sivgil, hey, can you hear us? Good, good evening. Good, good evening. Hi. Hi. Hey, hey thanks for joining. So uh, let's jump right in. And we have a golden rule that all Ukrainians coming to Ukrainian spaces and Ukrainians that we feature, they always uh, have the right to introduce themselves the way they wanted it. So please uh, do introduce yourself for everyone else, uh, mm. uh, who you are, where you come from. I usually introduce myself as Ukrainian journalist from Crimea. And um, <laughs> I think it's... <laughs> uh, also, I'm chief editor of Ukrainska Pravda, which is leading newspaper now in Ukraine. 
we have around 4 million readers every day. Um, um, I'm Crimean Tata, uh, and I think that it means a lot in my, um, on my um, identity. Um, also, I'm a singer sometime, but not today, I hope. <laughs> but <laughs> let us see. Um, so that's it. Like, and I'm, I'm, I'm Ukrainian Crimean Tata, uh, with Crimean Tatar origin, like, this is also one of one one of part of my identity, and I realized it like only around um, maybe six months ago. Not six months ago, but when the large scale war started. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, of course, we often talk about that. You know, it's been six months, but uh, in a way, for many Ukrainians, it feels mm-hmm. both like one long day or. Yeah. A decade mm-hmm. at the same time and uh, of course we've been I think every Ukrainian has been fighting in many different ways since February mm-hmm. doing what they can but uh, you often says you often say these days that truth is an important vep- weapon that Ukraine has maybe we don't have as much military power to uh, uh, to fight back against this genocide but truth is on our side so can you tell us a bit more what do you think truth what kind of role it has in uh in in these days and specifically for you and how it helps you to uh Um, yeah it's a difficult question um uh, because um, yesterday i had a discussion uh, because i'm now preparing for a conference in berlin and I had a discussion with my partner. Uh, what kind of what what is important to say, and what is interesting? What will be interesting after six months of war? Because I think that it's quite different from the beginning, uh, from like when it was six months ago, and now we have quite different situation. And uh, unfortunately, a little bit less focus on Ukraine, um, and uh, we need to. Um, Rethink a lot of things, like, um, sorry for um, that. Uh, so, and uh, I think that um, why truth is important and why truth is challenging also for Ukraine, because, uh, first of all, as a Ukrainian journalist, I need to think for, uh, for both things. I need to think about principles. I need to think about, because we have uh, um, our principles, our standards, and our enemy, I mean, Russia, um, they don't have uh, such principles. They use propaganda in all ways they they can, and you can fight only with the truth, but uh, and you can fight against them only with um, following your rules, following your principles. Uh, so, and it's not <laughs> uh, it's it's not easy. It's not easy. Uh, at the same time, you have to think about uh, how to protect people, how to uh, think about not to harm. Uh, and it's also important because uh, reporting during the war, uh, you have to think that uh, people uh, people can be in danger. Um, telling the truth, telling the story of people um, also can be challenging because, for example, when you uh, um, are reporting about people that are in capture, that um, now... Um, for example, as of you, you have to think. For example, I I, I can share this this story that we recorded uh, some stories with um, Azov prisoners uh, from Azovstal prisoners before, 
and uh, I have a discussion every single day with uh, my colleague how when we can publish it because now it's not a good time for that uh, because we are thinking about them uh, we are thinking about their natives and the uh, situation is still um, very dangerous very, very challenging uh, yeah maybe mm -hmm. I will stop here and then yeah. I, I actually also sharing right now um, some of the links for the conversation and specifically your absolutely stunning TED talk that you gave uh, about the truth uh, about the war, the truth about the war in Ukraine. So everyone else, please check out after, after this because it's absolutely important, especially, uh, especially very re relevant. Uh, up to this day. But I also wanted to bring everyone's attention to um, the, the work of Ukrainian journalists in general to understand, like, you know, you hearing you speaking about ethics and keep reporting um, no matter what and being also cognizant about the responsibility that you have as a journalist reporting on such topic as genocide and war. Uh, it's incredible because on the other hand, what a lot of people do not understand that for many Ukrainian journalists, their lives are being also torn apart by this war. So you need to work and you need to keep going. At the same time, your family, uh, you're yourself uh, feeling the consequences of this genocide. And of course, with, uh, you know, with Crimea, mm -hmm. I also have family members in occupied Crimea and now another part of the family uh, isolated on newly occupied Russian um, lands. So this is something that you struggle every day as a journalist as well, juggling uh, all that emotional toll and also what you have to do. Uh, my my favorite, not my favorite, but one of the story I want to share then, um, in the days when uh, it was a battle on, um, near the Kiev, near, near Kiev, Ukrainska Pravda published the names of Russian soldiers and uh, that fighting in Ukraine. And um, when I first um, found this information, when I checked it, and I, I checked everything, so uh, and we decided to publish it. Uh, my partner asked me, so, but you have to think about your parents because they were just a few kilometers away from, um, from, from them, like four or six kilometers from them. And the same story was with all our colleagues. And we decided to publish it uh, even in such conditions. And I think it was a very important decision. Um, uh, and of course, uh, you have to think about your parents. Uh, during this war, um, one of our colleagues, who is a news editor of Ukrainska Pravda, Evgeny Kizilov, he lost uh, his father. His father was brutally killed by Russian soldiers in Bucha um, in the beginning of March, when Bucha was occupied by Russians. Um, but Zhenia um, did everything possible to to stay uh, to to. To, to do his work uh, as, as great as he can. So, and uh, I think it's also, um, it means a lot. Yeah. And, you know, it just goes to show that we talk a lot about how for a very long time, and Maxim has been saying this for a very long time, people have been not judgmental, but wary of people from a certain country reporting on that country. 
But I think it just the stories that you shared go to show how much commitment and how much sort of, despite everything, ethical standards people have for telling the truth, disregarding everything. And I think that just shows to a lot of our Western colleagues who have these assumptions some of the time that maybe we're like too connected, too emotional, too whatever, to, to report on, on our own countries are wrong in a lot of ways. Um, which makes me kind of um, move on to a question, uh, to our main topic on uh, the question of, of Crimea. You mm-hmm. you spoke about your background and your identity a little bit. And mm-hmm. one of the things that we do here at, uh, with Ukrainian Spaces is try to question some of uh, common misconceptions that have existed or exist in, mm-hmm. amongst Western audiences, foreign audiences. So what do you think are some of sort of uh, the biggest misconceptions about Crimea Um, mm-hmm. that you have personally been fighting against? And what do you think we should really try and highlight mm-hmm. whenever we talk about Crimea and, and maybe Crimean Tatars? Mm. Here I want to mention that um, mm, I, I'm, we moved uh, to Crimea when I was two, two and a half years old and my sister was just six months uh, old. The Crimean Tatars that uh, were deported in 1944 by Stalin um, Maybe if, if I if so, we were deported from Crimean Peninsula because all Crimean Tatars were accused and collaborating with the occupiers, and more than uh, 200,000 people uh, expelled Stalin expelled from uh, from Crimea, uh, and most of them were women and children. Uh, so, and we were for 50 years uh, we were forbidden to live in Crimea. Uh, And um, we also were not mentioned in Soviet history books and in Soviet newspapers. So um, I was two and a half years old, and it was just collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, uh, our country curtain fell, um, but uh, it was challenging time for all Crimean Tatars because we just came for our land, and people were not happy to uh, to see us. And uh, I think, like, uh, everyone uh, in with Crimean Tatar origin faced with um, racism, with all these uh, negative things. But Crimea, uh, in the beginning of the 90s, what, so it, it was a very inter- interesting place. And uh, when I started to speak about it, uh, people even didn't believe me the first time. Because, for example... So we lived in independent Ukraine, but we taught in the alphabet and mathematics using Soviet textbooks. It was my childhood. I literally, I went to the first, first, uh, uh, first, first uh, um, to, to to school, and we. I remember, I remember this book. I remember the Soviet uh, textbook with mentioning like, and etc. So. Um, We celebrated Independence Day, but at the same time, like city residents went to demonstration on the anniversary of the Great Socialist Revolution. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> uh, it, it was really a strange place, and uh, but I didn't realize it, and I didn't feel like that. Um, I realized it just in 2014. Um, It, it's interesting, but uh, I, I, I still know a lot of Soviet songs about our victory, uh, about everything, because it was my childhood, like literally in my school. <laughs> we told only like Soviet songs about victory, about uh, um, great Soviet army, etc. 
But at the same time, in my family, my grandmother shared the stories about deportation, about uh, struggle, about um, resistance of Crimean Tatar people. Uh, but I didn't realize it. I didn't feel uh, like a part of this identity. And at the same time, at school, teachers usually said that, okay, Ukrainian language is a part of uh, Russian language. You, you, you don't even need to, to learn it. Um, okay, yeah, it, it's, it's, not, it's, it's quite the same language. You don't need it. You will not need it in future. And it was <laughs> uh, also, um, and I realized it only like in 2014 after occupation of Crimea. Um, so <clears throat> what kind of stereotypes we had about Crimea before, and I faced with such stereotypes um, in Ukraine when I came to Kiev, uh, usually that uh, we are Muslim, Crimean Tatars and uh, all these like extremist uh, things uh, I heard from my um, classmates it, it, it was normal like, and I started just to say that it's not true it's, it's, it's not okay it's uh, quite different from your perspective it's stereotype and I remember when security services uh, in, in Crimea also started they knew uh, they formed the uh, the new department that um, mm, the focus on um, uh, Crimean Tatar threat. So it it is also true, and it's a part of history of of our country, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, thanks so much for sharing your uh, personal family stories. I mean, Crimea is close to my heart as well. Uh, so many years our family uh, from my mother's side spent in Crimea and my father's side also spent in Crimea. They're not Crimean Tatar, but actually the funny thing that my grandfather's first language was Crimean Tatar because he was, wow. yeah, he was, he was raised in Crimean Tatar uh, village. I'm not going to be sharing it, um, the name uh, publicly, but still. But it always like fascinated me um, how the stories that they would tell about Crimea and all this convoluted relations that they had uh, with uh, Russian settlers in Crimea, Ukrainians, Crimean Tatars, when they especially when they started coming back, and uh, with with years, it kind of gave me understanding, kind of a wow factor that by understanding Crimea, you can actually understand lots about Russian colonialism in general. And by learning Absolutely. the stories of Ukrainians, Russians, and Crimean Tatars living in Crimea and all this dynamic, it's, it's, it opens your eyes how Russian colonialism operates. So you also often say uh, these days that what we're experiencing in Ukraine is a war of decolonization and mm -hmm. As you mentioned, you know, even personal decolonization for many of us, a kind of understanding the impact that uh, Russia had on our identities, on the language we speak or how we identify. So can you, you know, maybe share with us why you think it's important to look at the what is happening in Ukraine through that specific lens of uh, war against or war against colonization and war of decolonization? Uh, um. I had an interview with Yanina Sokolova, who is a brilliant Ukrainian journalist, um, in, in June. 
And she also shared with me story that uh, she grew up um, in Zaporizhia, which is like a Cossack uh, play, place of uh, Zaporizhia siege and uh, uh, like from the beginning of our independence, like it's important to know. And uh, she mentioned that it's, at school she also learned a lot of stories about like Soviet power and that when she graduated from school, uh, she she um, um, she shared the story that uh, she, she she gave a speech, and she um, asked a lot of things for Russian teachers for some reason. Uh, so she grew up in in Zaporizhia, but she shared the story with Russian teachers. That Russian teachers are great. Uh, she mentioned Russia, the uh, the motherland of uh, of her place. That um, like we have these Russian roots, etc. And unfortunately, um, the same was um, the same situation we had in Crimea, the same situation we had in eastern part of Ukraine, and uh, a lot of lot of people uh, only now realizing the scale of this uh, colonization. Um, um, and uh, we even didn't have a chance to think about it. We even didn't have a chance to realize it. And only when this war started, we realized that during all these years, we were under um, this um, influence of Russia. Uh, we watched uh, Russian TV channels. For example, um, the first um, conflict, uh, territory conflict, uh, Russia and Ukraine had uh, in, in 2003 uh, to, um, in Tuzla, which is a peninsula close to Crimean, uh, to Kerch, um, I grew up. And uh, as a young journalist, and I was already a young journalist, I um, remember that the difference how this story was... Uh, <clears throat> shared by Russian TV channels and how the story was uh, shared by uh, Ukrainian TV channels. And I felt this difference even I was 13 years old, uh, 14, 14 years old uh, girl. Uh, but a lot of, lot of people in these regions watched Russian TV channels and it was uh, the reality. Um, yeah, we unfortunately we don't know our our own history um, um, because in schools we um, had different variations of this history. Yeah, <laughs> we don't know you know the history of our families. I mean, of course, probably with yours it's even more yeah. tragic because of uh, genocide of Crimean Tatars and deportation. But like only recently. I discovered that uh, two-thirds of uh, my father's family was uh, repressed and deported uh, mm -hmm. to the north in the 30s. Uh, and even my father didn't know that. So I mm -hmm. actually find out through open databases of people who suffered from uh, Russian repressions and Russian uh, purges of 30s. And I shared it with my father, and he was like shocked to figure out that his uh, grandfather never talked about the whole, you know, two thirds of his family disappearing one day, and they never spoke about it ever since. 
it's, uh, you know, it's shocking that even within our own family histories, we have massive gaps of yeah. stories that are lost or uh, erased completely. And it's important to repeat these things over and over again, because unfortunately, we're still seeing loads of people idolize the Soviet Union. And it, it seems like only through personal stories of complete erasure can we try and make people really pay attention to the fact that what's happening today is a continuation of a longer history of colonial kind of rule by Russian Empire and Soviet Union after that. And so it's really important. And thank you so much, Sivgid, for sharing um, your story as well. But um, Maxim, you had a question as well, I think. Yeah, I wanted to ask mm -hmm. Sivgid if it's possible. Uh, you know, you mentioned uh, a bit of label extremism, uh, which is something that um, especially Russia would label Ukrainian Tatars uh, and Russia, Russian colonial settlers in Crimea would paint uh, Crimean Tatars who would like to uh, come back home in 90s as, you know, these Muslim extremists that will come and take our homes. And this kind of a strategy of othering Crimean Tatars uh, and uh, painting them as radicals and extremists uh, paved the way for, I think, you can still call it ethnic cleansing that is still happening in uh, Crimea by Russian occupation of forces when it comes to Crimean Tatars. But it was also extrapolated on Ukrainians. So now mm. any Ukrainian who is who is uh, um, supporting the idea of independent Ukraine is labeled Nazi extremist mm -hmm. by mm -hmm. Russian propaganda. So can you talk a bit more how this idea of extremism mm -hmm. Uh, originated and how it helps Russia to secure or at least to, uh, you know, uh, colonize, keep colonizing Crimea at the moment. Uh, uh, I want to add uh, one more point that uh, it's normal situation for you, all Ukrainian families and for all uh, our generations that you collect, uh, you collect uh, bit by bit the history of your family. And, uh, and it's the same with me. The same with me because um, a lot of, a lot of things just um, they just disappeared and you even don't have a chance to to find uh, the whole the whole story and to to restore the story um, but about uh, Crimean uh, radicalism and about colonization right now even today we published an absolutely wonderful story about Neriman Jalal, who is a good friend of mine, and he is a deputy of Majlis. Majlis, um, it's kind of our uh, Crimean Tatar government, uh, a representative um, in representatives here. And Neriman Jalal, uh, last year he visited a Crimean platform, and um, one month uh, after he came back to Crimea, he was arrested. Uh, and uh, Russian, Russian, Russian authorities in Crimea started just to uh, fake, uh, to manufacture his uh, criminal case. And now he became a terrorist. And um, three days ago, it was last, um, uh, last uh, court. Um, and uh, unfortunately, with, with, with uh, like... 100% he will receive around 15 or 15 to 20 years in in Russian prison uh, because only because he's he just participated uh, in this Crimean platform last year uh, and it's absolutely normal situation it's, it's not only one example how it works in in occupied Crimea uh, 
for the last eight years, a lot of people were arrested um, uh, as a terrorist, uh, like, and they received 15 to 22 years in Russian prisons, not only in occupied Crimea, but in other uh, Russian cities. Uh, they want us, uh, they want Crimeans, they want uh, Russian people believe that um, Crimean Tatars are dangerous, that they are terrorists, um, um, and uh, just uh, fight with our nation, uh, with labeling us as a terrorist, with labeling us um, as uh, <laughs> radicals, <laughs> and uh, all, all, all these uh, uh, labels. Like, um, and um, how to fight with it? Uh, uh, of course, as a human right defender, as a... <clears throat> A lot of organizations, I mean, uh, human rights violation, uh, spread this information with international partners. But unfortunately, it doesn't it doesn't help. Uh, and um, and it's it's a, it's it's a strategy of Russia in occupied Crimea. It's a strategy, unfortunately, and uh, and uh, also uh, unfortunately, it's an absolutely successful strategy because a lot of a lot of people. Mm, left Crimea for the mm -hmm. last eight years after after all these accusations. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I um, the the funny thing that well, not funny, but uh, uh, still like uh, these days, sometimes uh, I see uh, some poetry uh, by Crimean Tatars that is devoted to um, the stories of Crimean uh, Tatar deportation and then return. And uh, unfortunately, there is no translation of this uh, uh, really great verse. I'm tr I will try to find it and pin it to the conversation. But it's basically about uh, the return of Crimean Tatars to Crimea that was written in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And when I was reading it, it just... It was so moving because it basically spoke to the experience of many Ukrainians now who are deported from occupied territories, including, you know, the families that uh, caught in occupation like mine. And it's just moving. And I think maybe you will agree that people outside who want to understand the experiences of many Ukrainians who are going through um, uh, these deportations and losing their homes, they also need to learn more about Crimean uh, Tatar deportation and genocide that happened in 1944. Yes, uh, um, around four, five years ago already, um, we published a book about Crimean Tatar leader Mustafa Jimilev, um, who's a famous uh, Soviet dissident, and he shared the story of his family, and we also shared the story, uh, the stories of uh, thousands of Crimean Tatars activists and families. And, uh, you know, um, I was so much shocked uh, of, that everyone's story is so unique and uh, so dramatic and, and so um, sensitive at the same time. So, uh, and... Even like the story of Mustafa Jimilev, um, who is, a, I think that he's a, was one of the most famous Crimean Tatar in the world, uh, together with Jamala, who is a um, uh, Eurovision winner in 2016. And uh, what 
what was absolutely unique and uh, for me as a as for journalist um, that Mustafa Jamilev was born in, in Crimea uh, just six months before deportation of Crimean Tatars. So he was just six months old. And he dedicated all his life. So he spent around 15 years in Soviet prisons, prison, Soviet prisons. He had uh, three terms in Soviet prisons uh, for his dissident uh, work. Uh, but he was just six months old. So he didn't even know how uh, Crimea looked like. <laughs> but he dedicated all his life for, for this fight and... Uh, um, it's a, it's an absolutely unique um, situation. Uh, we uh, gathered um, the story of all these uh, victims, all um, witnesses of uh, this deportation. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of people died because it's already 78 years ago. So a lot of people died and... Um, Mm, it it became a history, uh, and uh, I understand that probably for my kids I will tell uh, not my not, of course I will tell my story my personal story because I have already my personal tragedy. I I'm not able to visit Crimea for the last eight years. Uh, I miss uh, my family. I miss my natives. I miss my life in Crimea. Um, so. Uh, but um, the story of deportation, I had a chance in my childhood, childhood to hear the story from my grandmother. But unfortunately, my kids uh, will hear the story from me, and it will be not full. It will be not full how it was uh, the story of my grandmother, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the song that uh, Jamala uh, brought to Eurovision 2016, and of course it's a beautiful song, but I remember exactly, I think it was March or April, when I was uh, sitting and suddenly uh, saw this song and you know played for myself, and this was the first time when I actually cried over this song. It completely mm -hmm. devastated me. I found the, um, you know, the lyrics that I shared um, that says, uh, when strangers are coming, they come to your house, they kill you all and say, we're not guilty, not guilty. Where's your mind? Humanity cries. You think you are gods, but everyone dies. Don't swallow my soul, our souls. We could build a future where people are free to live and love the happiest time. Where's your heart? Humanity rise. You think you are gods, but everyone dies. And... Uh, Sibir said was, there will be no singing, awful. but there was singing from Maxim today. It was marvelous, <laughs> but I just, I still like, I, I read through it, through this lyrics, and it's, I think every Ukrainian relates 100% to the song, although it was written to honor the uh, victims of Crimean Tatar deportation. Yeah. It's interesting that after this uh, war, I mean, after 24th of February, even Jamala, uh, told me that you have an absolutely different um, <laughs> understanding of this song because now <laughs> we all we all Crimean Tatars and everyone can um, can can find himself uh, as a as a hero of this song and um, everyone can understand words from this song yeah 
And I guess a lot of, you know, Ukrainians before 2014 and prior to that, maybe in a way were like, couldn't relate in a way because of as well our privilege and the fact that Crimean Tatars have been at the forefront of fighting against this Russian imperial colonial power for such a long time just makes me very grateful and thankful that that we're all Ukrainian together. Um, we have, I think, time for a couple more questions. Uh, I wanted to ask you to go back to your role as editor-in-chief of Ukrainska Pravda. Um, I sometimes ask this question as well to people who have been doing a lot of uh, either reporting or educational content um, stuff since the beginning of the war. But um, what has been the most popular story that, that Ukrainska Pravda has covered since February 24th? Because I think it, mm-hmm. it shows a lot about news, like behaviors of people, you know, and yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I think the most popular story we published, uh, it was um, documentary. <laughs> it's, it's funny, but it's true. It was documentary occupant. Um, um, we received a video from, uh, from uh, phone of uh, one of Russian soldiers and uh, our brilliant reporter Mikhail Kach uh, created a film based on um, this video. And it's an absolutely amazing. We even received uh, thousands of invitations from different documentary film festivals uh, just to participate um, in contest, which is <laughs> strange, but it's, it, it is true. And we already received... Uh, three and uh, eight million views um, um, on our YouTube. If you're talking about text um, version, the most popular stories were uh, the list of Russian soldiers who came to Ukraine and we published all surnames and it became uh, popular. Mm, sorry. Uh, and uh, other story was about um, the villa of uh, Ramzan Kadyrov. We, we found his villa in Dubai uh, and um, investigated all story uh, connected to this villa. And uh, the, the sad part of the story that um, the man who helped us uh, in Dubai uh, after this investigation was... Um, <laughs> Deported from Dubai by by authorities in United uh, Emirates. Oh God! Yes. Uh, yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. People have to sacrifice a lot without knowing it, but that's super interesting. And um, for those who don't know, I think probably Ukrainska Pravda has the best investigative journalism in Ukraine. So if you are, and you guys now have um, an, a version in English as well, right? Yes, uh, and it's quite popular. It's popular. We, um, around one and a half people, uh, one and a half million people uh, read Ukrainska Pravda in English, which is an amazing result. Uh, we just started this uh, English version um, in the end of uh, February. And it's quite successful. So a lot of a lot of a lot of a lot of people from different countries, from Britain, from United States, read us in English. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, thank you so much, Sivgir. We have our final, last traditional question that we've been asking um, our guests from the very beginning of Ukrainian Spaces, um, and it's the one that Maxim and I value and, and love the most. But 
Um, and I think in the context of everything you said today about your background and, and identity and stories and what you do now, I think it will be really fascinating and interesting for everyone to hear the answer to this question from you. But um, what does it mean to be Ukrainian for you right now? And has it changed since the beginning of mm -hmm. the full-scale invasion? Oh. Uh, to me, uh, now to be Ukrainian and Ukrainian with Crimean Tatar origin, how I mentioned uh, before, uh, is to fight as as much as possible um, for our future um, and um, maybe also think about our past and um, um, keep all memories about this war about uh, previous tragedies in our families, in our nation, um, and, uh, but, but think about future. So I, I live with a big hope that in future uh, Ukraine will never, and Ukrainians, and I mean our kids, our and, and next generation will never face with this brutality, and um, we will be, we will exist, and our country will exist, and uh, will be Europeans. Um, so, but the price of this is very, very high, and I hope that future generations will remember it. Thank you so much. Thank uh, you. Thank you for joining us and uh, sharing your stories and your work. It's been true honor to have you and it's also was therapeutical to hear uh, from you. I hope everyone else will also agree. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Sergei. Bye. Yeah. Uh, we will uh, uh, stick around for a bit. Uh, first and foremost, I wanted to uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to Ukrainian Spaces, but also if you are for the first time joining us, uh, this is 100% volunteer, independent, and listener-supported project and initiative. We exist because you support us. So if you are not a sponsor and supporter yet, please check our Patreon page, uh, Ukrainian Spaces, and become one if you fancy uh, we provide and we offer our sponsors lots of cool additional content and most importantly you can get front row seat uh, to ask questions in person or through our help uh, about uh, our uh, guests if you like you can do it on patreon page or you can just dm us there or on twitter and plus we also launched our uh, social media accounts specifically for ukrainian spaces on twitter and instagram so also follow and share and if you listen to us as a podcast don't forget to rate and comment because that's important that's how we uh, are trending uh, and start trending on so in so many countries because of that but uh, yeah, Valeria, I wanted to actually uh, ask you a question that we got uh, from one of our sponsors. Um, and I think, uh, you know, are you still with me, right? Here. 
I am, yeah. I think um, I know that Sivgil had to run somewhere. So Sivgil, feel free uh, to, to disconnect if, if you'd like. We just have a, a couple of housekeepers. Thank you for having me. Thank you for Thank this. you so much for joining us and taking the time. And talk absolutely. to you soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thank uh, so, uh, Val, uh, we have uh, a question. I don't, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to share uh, the name probably, um, but the question is from our sponsor, sponsor, and uh, um, he's right, he writes, I wanted to say, I just discovered your podcast and it's the most comforting thing I have heard since the beginning of Full Scale Invasion. Um, I'm a Ukrainian Canadian uh, and uh, uh, my Ukrainian claim to fame is I'm the great great nephew of Kazimir Malevich, which you know, when I read that, it filled me with joy because imagining um, uh, a descendant of Malevich still fighting um, and speaking out against the Russian colonialism and Russian cultural appropriation is just an amazing thought to have. But uh, he asks you um, about very important and actually super connected topic to Crimea is uh, about Ukrainians who are collaborators on the occupied lands. Um, he asked about our thoughts, what we think about the motives of those Ukrainians, how Russia is getting a small number of Ukrainians to betray their country. And uh, uh, I think it's a, it's a timely uh, yeah. moment to share uh, what, yeah. what we think about it. I was thinking about it before the episode, and I don't want to say anything too controversial here. But um, I think in the context of our conversation together, what many people perhaps don't realize when they look at collaborators with the Russians is this history of colonialism that we were just talking about, right? The fact that even, you know, in schools, we were taught certain things, we were, depending on where you lived as well, and so on. And it's been quite... And we've been talking about it since the beginning, right? The process of decolonization in ourselves has been a really long and tough one, but an important one. And uh, some people don't feel the need to do that and continue uh, living guided by a lot of these thoughts and, and, and imposed narratives that have been cultivated by Russian imperialism for a very long time. So I think a lot of it is about like, not everyone has that, ability or you know to step away and really think about the historical reasons for why people do certain things but anyway I hope everyone understands um what I mean in the sense that I think we need to acknowledge that that a lot of um a lot of collaborators also you know have been growing up with serious kind of um implications not implications but a serious pressure from the outside russian propaganda machine and then the other thing is also human nature right like it's not about being ukrainian or not can you also still hear me yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not about being ukrainian or not. it's just human nature right people a lot of the time uh just because they they choose a lot of people choose what is more comfortable right so mm -hmm. if if and sometimes something that's more safe or seemingly more safe. So it's it's a lot of the time, yeah, we just need to think a little bit about the motivations of those people. And I hope what I just said helps understand that a little bit better. But uh, what about you, Maxim? Yeah, it's a, it's a very emotional also topic because part of my family is on occupation. So I, I try not to share 
as much because of security concerns. Although the stories, of course, we hear uh, regularly are just horrifying in the extent of genocide and terror on Russian-occupied territory, especially uh, towards Ukrainians, uh, especially those Ukrainians who do not speak or do not look like uh, Russians would like them to look is just unimaginable. But it also brings a bit of more nuance to this issue. I think, you know, a lot of people shouldn't be quick to judge. Of course, there are, there are laws and Ukraine uh, has those laws and uh, it clearly def defines what it means to be a collaborator. And I think once the occupation is over, we can trust our, um, um, our government and our courts to establish uh, the truth, who did what, and whether the law was broken. But also, I think we shouldn't be quick to judge situations of the people without knowing all the information. First of all, it's even very hard to get any information. You know, I cannot reach my um, family for some weeks sometimes because there is no uh, connection, even telephone connection. And when I can reach we can only exchange information that is safe to exchange, considering you know, we need to be like very uh, paranoid thinking if anyone listens, how this uh, information can be weaponized against uh, the people in occupation. But even then, unless you lived in occupation, unless you face that terror, and unless you personally know what it's like to make those decisions every day to survive, I don't think you should be quick to judge what it means to collaborate yeah. uh, and uh, what we should think of those people. I think this is not a conversation for now, um, yeah. but for the times when the occupation is over and people finally can talk there and speak their truths. And I think there's a different level of collaborator that we're talking about. If it's like clearly, you know, Medvedchuk and other people at a high government level who have been like, you know, doing whatever they've been doing. That's one thing. And it's a very different story when you talk about what Maxim has been talking about. So I think it's also important to understand the level of power that a certain individual holds when we are talking about collaborators. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I think I think I'll close, uh, if you don't mind, I'll close this uh, a question with a um a bit of a personal story I remember that our family shared about our other occupation that happened during World War II um, when the Nazis occupied our village in southern Ukraine. And I remember our my grandma would tell a story about um, um, an official collaborator, Ukrainian collaborator in their village. So when with uh, Germans would come to the village, they usually would appoint um, some kind of a, a master and you know of to the village to uh, occupational authority usually it would be german but in their village that was ukrainian a collaborator but um what that person also did is he regularly uh, alerted everyone about the planned uh, slave raids by Germans, would, because Germans would often do those raids on Ukrainian villages and take people into labor slavery and take them to back to Germany and Europe to build roads. And my actually, my grandmother was one of them. But he would alert a lot of people in advance, so they hide their kids, especially young women. Um, and this was kind of like a story that st stuck to me 
to understand the nuance of the occupation and the wartime. And sometimes not, not all survival situations are black and white, and you need to look at each and every of those and make, make up your own mind. So, yeah. Unfortunately, Ukrainians keep suffering from this shit. You know? Yeah. But to round off our uh, one-hour session today, uh, one-hour conversation, not session, session sounds way too official, um, with, a, with something positive, we wanted to also um, thank Ola Hercules, who has added her message this week to our time capsule on her Instagram account and, and share with you some of her uh, notes for us as well. She's been one of our uh, really kind of long-term support, well, long-term, as, as long-term as six months, six months has been. Uh, but we wanted to also quickly read what she said so that all of you can see and listen to it as well. Um, and Maxim, would you like to do that or shall I? Uh, I think it's better if you do it. <laughs> so uh, Olya is uh, voiced over by another uh, amazing Ukrainian woman. Someone, my, my partner keeps saying that Olya uh, and uh, like looks, uh, both of us look like she's uh, she's my older sister, uh, which I find funny. But anyway, um, so Olya shared, of course, a link to our uh, last episode of Ukrainian Spaces season one, uh, which many of you were here for as well. But essentially, Olya also added and said that um, my wish is for Ukrainians within Ukraine and those who, like me, live abroad realize the power and importance of building up a community. I haven't had that in Kahovka, in all honesty. We've been through tough times and I feel like people and families kept to themselves. The first time I did countered serious community work in Ukraine was by Natalia from Experience Ukraine and Beyond and Tanya from Molotok NGO. I wrote about their work and their trans... Um, Carpathian Nizhnya Selishya community in summer kitchens. They've been creating amazing spaces and events for young people in the area and also for kids from eastern parts of Ukraine. We must build communities by creating spaces where people can meet and do something fun or meaningful or both. I'm hoping that big charities um, and the Ukrainian government can help us create these spaces after victory. So thank you so much, Olya, and we'll leave you on this uh, note about community uh, before we close and I hope I hope that what we're doing here in a way is also uh, creating that community even though some of us are abroad some of us are in Ukraine some of us are all over the world but it's that sense of community that we're trying to cultivate yeah. here together um, absolutely and uh, I pinned the uh, poetry and the uh, a small verse from a fantastic poem called Chokrak by Orest Korsovetsky. It's in Ukrainian, but you can use the translate tweet or Google translate it. Unfortunately, there's no um, English translation, but if you're Ukrainian, fellow Ukrainian, just read it and share it because it's so moving. And despite that, it's about the experiences of Crimean Tatar uh, returning back to ancestral homes to Crimea, it speaks to every Ukrainian these days. So this is just a gem. Um, that's it. Thank you so much for today. Uh, it was moving and great. And we will be come back uh, soon with the new Ukrainian uh, Spaces episodes. Um, but for now, that's it. Apart from one thing, Slava Ukraini. Hello, I'm Slava, and see you next time. Bye.